Precision Medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Hello, Precision Insights podcast listeners. This is your host, Roy St. Clair, with Genexus Healthcare Systems. Thrilled to take you on another journey related to precision medicine. In today's episode, we are going to focus on one spectacular journey through precision medicine. And along the way, we're going to be talking about the power of mentorship, the way that genomic research is changing, and how race and issues of equity intersect with this important field. Our guest for this journey is the incredible Anita Limdi, a leading researcher in translational genomics and a proud mentor to many trying to make a difference in this space. Dr. Limdi is a clinical pharmacist and epidemiologist and with expertise in pharmacogenomics, pharmacoepidemiology, and chronic disease epidemiology. Her work spans from research and discovery to its application and implementation in clinical practice. And this last piece on implementation is really critical for our perspective here at Genexis. And her initiative aims to identify and overcome barriers, incorporate tools of genetic medicine, and assess clinically relevant outcomes with aims to improve patient and population outcomes, inform health policy, and guide reimbursement strategies for precision medicine. Professor Limby, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's, it's a pleasure to talk with you about something that's very near and dear to my heart, genomic medicine, pharmacogenomics, and the role of pharmacists in this field. Well, I, I love to hear that. And our calls walking into this, I heard that loud and clear. There's so much work that you've done in this space that's been really impactful. So we're thrilled to have you. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to be thrilled to hear the discussion. Before we jump into it, maybe you can tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and your journey into the precision medicine space. Sure. So I started my career as a clinical pharmacist. I worked as a hospital pharmacist for eight, nine years. And during that span, more and more, I was observing this variability in drug response, which was different from what we could predict with the tools we had as pharmacists. So this was right around the time late 2000, early 2001, you know, the first few case reports or case series of genetic underpinnings of drug response began trickling in. And that's what really ignited my interest in this new and emerging field of pharmacogenomics, combining our knowledge of genomics and our knowledge of pharmacology to understand drug response and not just the severe adverse drug reactions, but understand its influence on the entire spectrum of drug response. So that's kind of where I started. I still remember going to the first pharmacogenetic research network meeting, April 15, 2001, which was hosted by NIGMS with the sole purpose of finding a mentor and where I am what you call a person who doesn't have an academic pedigree. I started at the bedside, had a question, and then I had to go out and find a mentor who could help me think about how to design a research project and a career around answering that question. 
And so I looked through the speaker biographies and I looked for three things. I looked for the name of a drug, any drug, the word genetics, and the word cytochrome P450. And that's how I found my first mentor, who was David Flockhart, who did tamoxifen pharmacogenetics. And we all know his legacy that he has left in this field. So coming at research from a clinical angle really gave me a very clear question that I wanted to answer. And it gave me direction. And then I had to go out and find my mentor. But that's how I got started. I wrote my first NIH grant really while I was working as a clinical pharmacist and occasionally would call Dave up and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Does it make sense? And he would give me his feedback. And actually, I made a career out of looking at anticoagulation pharmacogenomics, but I started writing a grant on genetic underpinnings of dermatologic toxicities to anti-epileptic drugs. And my hypothesis that this was related to the HLA region and immune response. And Dave really encouraged me to look into that because nobody else was doing it. And I recall having a conversation with him six months into this process. And I said, I really should be doing warfarin because nobody has looked at African-Americans because it is different. Their response is different. And there was silence on the other end of the line. And I thought, oh my God, he's going to not be very happy with this. And instead he said, if your instincts are so strong, you should go for it. And that to me was a sign of a true mentor. So, yep, that's how I got started. And so after that K grant, you know, I transitioned to an R and have not looked back since. It's a terrific story. When you look at what you saw from him in terms of mentorship, and, and now you obviously, you are mentoring, you know, lots of aspiring researchers and, and you've seen both sides of it. What would you suggest are some of the important qualities for a mentor to keep in mind that's going to make them effective and really helpful for those they're working with? So the first thing you do, and I've had, in addition to Dave, I've had Donna Arnett and David Allison, and what they always impressed upon me is you have to come up with the question you want to ask. The clearer your question is, the better people will be able to help you, right? So the analogy here is you go to the doctor and say, oh, I'm not feeling good. Then the doctor is going to run all these tests to figure out what's wrong with you. But if you go and tell him or her that my left leg hurts, they know where to start, right? So the key thing in in finding the right mentor is for the mentee to really understand what they want to do. And you will be surprised at how many people will step out of the woodwork to help you. So the clearer you are, the clearer the guidance you will get. I would advise you not to be restricted by geography. And with COVID, I think that's one thing we have learned. You can remote into any meeting. And so you can remote into mentorship. And I I did that back in the days when you usually worked in your mentor's lab as you developed your career. So don't let geography be a barrier. 
once you have identified your question, you should reach out and seek advice from people who are experts in the field. And it may surprise you how many people will genuinely help you. That's terrific. Another thing in that journey that you mentioned that, that jumped out, I think we spoke about this previously, was the different perspective you got from that bedside experience. You weren't coming down the standard path into doing research and trying to answer new questions in genomic medicine. So what difference in perspective do you think that allowed you coming from clinical pharmacists, coming from that position at the bedside and thinking about questions or originating questions from that setting? So that's a great question. The traditional entry into academic research is you work with a mentor, you work in the program, you are exposed to the science and the questions that the team is asking. And within that, you have opportunity to ask your own questions. I did not have that luxury. On the other hand, the angle that I came at it from was really identifying a question that was clinically relevant that I saw every day in practice and that I saw physicians struggling with on how to optimize drug response. So it gave me a kind of ownership of the idea. It was my idea. It wasn't somebody else suggesting, hey, this is an interesting area of research. Are you interested? You know, I was already interested. It didn't have to be sold to me. And I think that made all the difference in the passion and the drive. No, I think that's excellent. You're starting with the problem in a tangible way. You're seeing it, you're, you're, you're working with a patient who's experiencing it, and it's a very bottoms-up approach to the question generation. I think that's fabulous. So let's maybe take this point and bridge into a discussion more broadly about genomic research and how it's transforming. So I think we've spoken about this previously, but the space is evolving very quickly. You started, as you mentioned, with this meeting in 2001, and much has happened in the intervening years. And now, as we see, the pace really picking up. Can you tell us a little bit about the transformation you've seen uh, over your research career? And then maybe we can pivot from that into a discussion of how genomic research is catalyzing some change elsewhere in scientific research. Yeah, genomic research has changed a lot since the early 2000s technology itself. And, you know, I think this has been underpinned by several key developments, including the completion of the Human Genome Project in 2003, and not just completion of the project, but all the technologies it enabled. So I still remember with the warfarin research I was doing, I extracted DNA myself on the weekends, I ran PCR, I digested the PCR product. So basically it took me anywhere from three to four days from DNA extraction to running PCR, to digesting the product, to rerunning, to determine genotype for two markers, right? And now you can sequence the genome at a fraction of the cost at such speed, you can do a whole genome-wide analysis with such accuracy so the technologies that have really emerged really enable us to, to interrogate the genome at a depth in a timely and cost-efficient manner that, that really wasn't even possible just two decades ago. So that has been one big change. 
The other thing I think genomic medicine, which is, I think you alluded to it in the second part of the question, has been a boon for science. If you just go to PubMed and do a search genomic and put your favorite disease, you will see the number of investigators that are working together to address that common problem. So I think the intangible benefit of genomic medicine has been that it has really shaken up the lab-based model where lab A is working on something, lab B is working on the same thing and it's publish or perish. It has really changed how we think about data and sharing. And that wasn't necessarily an easy or a comfortable transition, but investigators in this space have made that transition and and it's working well. So when we started working with the Warfront Pharmacogenomics Consortium, investigators shared data that they hadn't published. I was a newly minted NIH grantee that had a career development award. And I shared my data before I published my first paper from my data. And that was uncomfortable. It was a little scary, right? Because that's how academic medicine thinks about promotion and thinks about your achievements. Genomic medicine really created a framework of collaboration that enabled investigators to step outside those silos and share their data and their expertise with complete strangers to move science ahead. And I think that is very evident in all across genomic medicine, not just pharmacogenomics, that that has been the biggest transformation, I think, the last 20 years. So if you look at investment, you look at a lab getting funded to do X, what genomic medicine investigative teams had delivered is beyond what was funded. And more importantly, the collaborations that have been built will continue to produce. So you can't measure the output of this effort just based on funding. It's, it's already had a significant return on investment. And it sounds as though the combination of those forces, the technology is improving very quickly. The space is becoming more collaborative. People are sharing data. They are working together on shared problems. Those suggest to me that we should be seeing acceleration. Do you think, A, that's happening? And B, when you look forward, do you think we're on track to keep that momentum and and to see this space increase the amount of impact it's able to have in the coming years? Great question. I I do see it it is accelerating. And in fact, now it is pretty standard to expect broad and wide data sharing. So even study participants are consented for future research and future research that may be unrelated to the problem that they are enrolled for. Investigators are planning for it and the data science capabilities in addition to the genomic technologies is really expanding that will allow us to look at bigger data sets, more complex data sets to attain a finer and finer mapping of the answers we seek, absolutely. That's so exciting. And then just to step back a bit, the top of the, the question, you're explaining, you know, what's really happened with genomic medicine and, and with the improvements we've seen in technology. 
Can you zoom in on, on pharmacogenetics specifically and talk about some of the improvements you've seen there? And as this, as this field accelerates, what do you anticipate it could mean for our understanding of pharmacogenomics and how we might be changing implementation practice going forward? So pharmacogenomics is really where precision medicine started, right? It, it really started with patient getting drug, patient having an exaggerated response, an inquisitive physician working with a researcher to understand what was going on. And it really started at candidate gene approach. So thinking about you got this drug, what is a metabolic pathway for the drug? And can we look at the gene set code for the enzymes in the metabolic pathway? And that's how the field began. Because the field began with exaggerated response, one of the things that you begin to appreciate is that exaggerated response was very well-defined, right? So the clinician had defined it in identifying where to start looking. So I think the the field of pharmacogenomics, the, the key developments is it was really built on defining the phenotype under study very well. And as the, the work has progressed, we have looked at not just the extremes of response, but the entire spectrum of response. So you begin to understand not just what genes and clinical factors affect a severe toxicity, but what are the factors that can predict the response you expect, the therapeutic response. It enabled the field to look at the entire spectrum. In addition to the technological advances in genomics have really been, you can see their impact at the forefront of pharmacogenomics. So we have point of care testing. Spartan, which is a Canadian company, has CYP2C19 testing, which goes from buckle swap to genotype in 60 minutes. So it really puts this technology at the hands of the clinicians. There are institutions that have it in their cat lab and they do the test outside the realm of pathology. Technology companies have also developed multiplexed. So you could look at the important genes instead of looking at the whole genome. What are the genes that we know impact drug response and look at those genes so that we can have a limited data set that can be queried and quality control and, and integrated into clinical practice. And that's where uh, the pharmacogenomic knowledge base, the pharmacogenetic research network have played a vital role in curating the research data, in curating the gene drug associations, and then the Clinical Pharmacogenetic Implementation Consortium really digging in on where data are robust and developing guidelines to enable clinicians to use that information because most of the clinicians in practice were not, are not trained on how to use this information in clinical care so that the collaboration is not just between investigators, but it, it's between these consortia that have identified unique knowledge gaps and are addressing those knowledge gaps collaboratively, right? So one consortium doesn't try to do with what another consortium is doing well, they will say, okay, what, what's missing and how can we add to it? The latest one is Stripe, which is a collaborative community, which is bringing together 
public-private partnership. So it's bringing all the stakeholders from patients to researchers, to clinicians, to payers, to the labs that are doing the testing and the FDA to bring all these stakeholders to look at the evidence, to look at the gaps, to harmonize across these groups that are doing very important and phenomenal work to move the field ahead. So I think that has been really transformative in our field and it, it really lays the foundation for genomic medicine beyond pharmacogenomics. So that is two organizations that you mentioned, uh, CPIC and Stripe. And, and for anyone listening, who's passionate about the space and who hasn't already engaged with these organizations and followed them and then taken a look at the great work they're doing. Now's your chance to pause the podcast to go out and sign up. They're, they're excellent. Can't endorse their work enough. Can maybe, you know, Dr. Limity, let's, let's pivot. There's some, there's a whole section of your work that I think has been really, really interesting. When we were talking previously, it's something that is uh, differentiated from what we see a lot of other people working on. And it's also very important. And this is your work related to race, genetics, and how they play a role in medication response. I'd love to hear you tell, tell me again, because I'm curious about it, but also our audience a little bit more about your work in the space and what's happening. So as I said, when I was writing my first grant, I said, yes, there are many people working on anticoagulation pharmacogenetics, but nobody's looking at how common are these gene variants in different self-identified race groups, how different is their impact the same? We know from our life experiences that the same exposure or insult doesn't have the same effect, right? We know that African-Americans who have high blood pressure have a disproportionately higher risk of coronary heart disease and CHD events than the same increase in European Americans. Yes, high blood pressure is bad for all race groups, but there is a differential effect by race. And here I want to make a point that most of the research that has been done has looked at race that the patient self-identifies. So this is self-identified race and ancestry, not genetic ancestry. There is a lot of discussion now on the use of race in research and in clinical care. But this is where we started, right? It allowed us to begin to say, are people different? What are the differences? And really get to the bottom of identifying the effect of known gene variants in different self-identified race groups. It also allowed us to identify predictors, both clinical and genetic, that are specific and unique to that group. The Warfarin story does highlight this. Most of the work that was done in, in Warfarin pharmacogenomics was done in patients of European descent and that identified common variants in the genes that metabolize Warfarin having a significant effect. But those variants are less common in African-Americans. And African-Americans actually have variants that are specific to that race group that have an impact. So when we did those discoveries, really shed light on the results of the two randomized clinical trials that were done to assess genotype-guided therapy and warfarin dosing. The COAG trial, which was done in the U.S., recruited 27% African-Americans. You know, so that's the other thing I think 
genomic medicine has done well. While they're not randomized clinical trials, they have recruited and studied diverse race groups. If you look at clinical trials, that diversity is not there. So these studies have really enabled us to look at differences by race. And the Warfin story does show that we do need to study diverse race groups. And by that, not just validate findings from a European ancestry group into a Asian or African ancestry, we need to do discovery efforts within each of these groups so that we understand what is important. It's like going out to buy a dress and say, does this dress fit X and does it also fit Y? You want to actually tailor the dress to fit Y. And that's what precision medicine is about. When I'm going out to buy a dress, I try and make sure it is tailored to Y. Every, yes. every time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, a question there. There's the issue of representation, right? And part of what this sounds like to me is that genomics is forcing the field towards taking representation more seriously, but there's a degree of representation we can't actually know until we've done the work right. with, with this intersection of genomics and, and race. And as we do it, we're understanding important pieces that can aid in clinical outcomes. We can drive care in more appropriate ways. These obviously though intersect with another critical issue, which is equity. And you've spent some time on this topic. I'd love to hear your thoughts as you're working through this, what is the impact and then how do we have to think about issues of equity to ensure that we are responsibly conducting the research and responsibly implementing our findings? So that is a complex question that we don't have an accurate answer for yet. The debate around the classification and use of race has been a very contentious issue for centuries. Our collective human experience over the last year has really elicited a a very visceral response around Black Life Matters, Asians Life Matters. While this has been very sad and discomforting news, what it has also done is it has reignited a more thoughtful conversation around recalibrating the use of race. And you, you can see editorials in every leading medical journal over the last year really has spent a lot of time on this issue. This is our history. We have to recognize it and we have to learn from it. So we have to recognize that our ideas of race have evolved over time. They have been shaped by the politics of the time. They have shaped the politics of time. And race has become entrenched as an essential variable and is rightly or wrongly considered an independent risk factor for disease rather than a mediator for inequity. And so while we think about how do we move forward, how do we eradicate racism, we also want to understand our journey to this point, understand and appreciate the correlation, at least current correlation, of a person's self-identified race. So when I say I am Asian, that is my identity. 
when you sequence my genome and say you're X percent European and Y percent whatever, that is my ancestry. And that may have important biologic implications. But if you ask me to self-report my race, you know, most people report their race as an identity. It is a social, a power construct. And yes, it does correlate with geography and where people came from, but this is not where we are going. And that's what we need to understand. So there are two schools of thoughts that are emerging that races an important variable, it should be retained. There, there is a school that says we need to abolish race. And I, I think both stances are far too simplistic and too extreme. A stance we need to appreciate that despite self-identified race being an imperfect surrogate, we need to understand situations where it has been useful where the exclusion of race as a variable can actually cause harm. And it may actually cause harm for the disadvantaged and underrepresented populations because we haven't studied them. So I think we need to understand the implications of not just including race, but we also need to understand the implications of excluding race as a variable. And that actually is very situational dependent, it's very context dependent, and every situation has to look at that variable and how they are going to incorporate it into their decision making needs to be evaluated in a thoughtful manner. I don't think it's a simple answer to ensure the benefits of genomic medicine and of pharmacogenomics. We must recognize that our ideas of race and ancestry have not just happened overnight, that they have been slowly building over time, over centuries, and it's going to take a very sustained and sometimes very uncomfortable discussion and a dialogue in order for us to re-examine, revise, and refine how we think about issues around race and equity. It is such an important topic, and your, your point that there's a lot of learning to be done Yes. I think is is very central here. I know for myself personally, I look forward to continuing to learn from you and your work. And those of your peers have been thrilled to go through it with you. Look, Nina, we're, we're nearly at time here. And I, I cannot express enough how much we appreciate having the discussion with you today. Hope all of our listeners feel the same. Before we part ways, do you have any words you'd like to get out there for those innovative clinicians or the genomic researchers that may be listening? Any key points you'd like to pass on to them? So we are living in really exciting times. 20 years ago, actually 2001 is when I started writing my grant. Almost a year, 20 years ago is when I first met my mentor. Advances in technology and knowledge and our ability to interrogate the genome has been put at our fingertips, right? How we use these tools, we need to engage diverse populations. And by diverse, I don't just mean racial diversity. I mean gender diversity. I mean more complex, clinically complex patients that have phenotypes that are across. So it's not just when you say kidney disease, you don't just mean end-stage renal disease. You mean the entire spectrum of kidney function. So diversity of population 
needs to be engaged in research. So we really begin to understand the impact of clinical factors, the impact of genetic factors, the interplay, the complex interplay between the two. We have thought about research and influence of explanatory variables on outcome variables in a very linear fashion, but we are now at a point where we have enough data and capability to actually begin to look at the complex interplay of all these things working together for outcomes that are important for the patient. So I would close by saying that the progress made by genomic medicine has created clear and tangible benefits for science and society. I think pharmacogenomics, both the research and implementation efforts are at the forefront. They have taken this opportunity, they have engaged an increasingly diverse population, and by moving from research to clinical practice, they have created a roadmap for how we begin to integrate genomic medicine into practice. I will repeat what I said around race, that to ensure that all humans benefit from these advances, we must recognize that our ideas of race and ancestry need to be re-examined and refined. And we have a powerful tool in our hand. How we wield the tool is our collective responsibility. That is an excellent way to end. Nita, thank you so much. Again, everyone, you've heard your, your call to be excited, to keep learning, to find great mentors, to find great questions, and to keep uh, trying to better understand our own shared history and where we go forward. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. Pleasure was mine.